This is A Drink with a Friend. I'm Tish Oxenreiter, and I am here with Deacon Harrison Garlic. Thank you so much for being here, Deacon. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. Now, do you? How, what do you like people to say? Do you like them to call you Deacon Harrison, Deacon Garlic? What's your preferred? Yeah, Deacon, Deacon Harrison, Deacon Garlic, either that works. Okay, okay. I will go with that then. Um, what are you drinking right now before we begin our chat? I am just drinking coffee and trying to stay warm uh, in Tulsa, mm-hmm. Oklahoma. So it's been, we got down to negative 16 here uh, recently. We've warmed up. We had a warm front. Now we're in the 30s, I think. So I'm just trying to drink some coffee and stay warm. Sounds good. Yeah. You are just a little, I don't know how many miles that is, but five hours or so northwest of me. I'm drinking hot tea as well for the exact same reason. I cannot do caffeine this late in the day. As much as I love coffee, just doesn't happen. I got to stick with herbal tea after like 1 p.m. That's That's been my MO for a few years now. Anyway, well, I'm excited to have you on because you have really been at the forefront of my Twitter now called XFeed a lot. I think uh, it knows its algorithm well and it knows, I, I don't know where that happened, but um, you you showed up and then I kept following you and you kept saying the things that I've been wanting to hear other people say. And so I want to talk to you about some of what you uh, like to post on there. You, you post about a number of things, but Asadia is the one in particular that I really want to park on. Um, before we get into that, though, you're a deacon and a lot of my listeners probably are unfamiliar with that term within the Catholic Church. So can you just tell us a little bit about what it is you do as a deacon? Yeah, sure. I'd be happy to. So deacons are a part of what we would call holy orders in the Catholic Church. So we have uh, bishops, priests, and deacons. And we think each one uh, exhibits, if you will, or reflects an aspect of Jesus Christ. So bishops reflect uh, Christ the Good Shepherd. So if you think of a bishop, right, he usually has like his staff, that crozier looking thing uh, that's very shepherd-like. A priest is configured the Christ, the priest, clearly. Think about like Hebrews, right, in the New Testament. And the deacon, though, uh, diaconos, the diaconate, is Christ the servant. Uh, think of like uh, Isaiah, right? The suffering servant. And so the deacon is supposed to configure his life uh, to Christ insofar as like serving others. So we believe that uh, deacons, right, were instituted at the beginning of Acts. So you think of Acts, the, um, the apostles, right, who we see as the bishops are basically saying, listen, we're, we're serving at table, right? We have uh, the Eucharist, we have the Mass, but we need someone to help us with the administration. We need someone to help us like feed the poor and do these things. And so uh, they ordain a group of men for that purpose. So that's what I play. I'm a deacon. I've been a deacon uh, for a few years now. And in the Diocese of Tulsa, where I serve, I mainly do the admin work, right? I do that back office work. So I do our legal and Chinese protection and HR and insurance, all the fun things that people think about when they think about a church, right? Uh, <laughs> but it helps, right? You, you help untie knots for priests, right? As things come up so they can kind of focus on their main ministry. Yeah. Did you go to any formal schooling for being a deacon? That's a great question. So I have a very, very patient wife uh, <laughs> who allowed me when I was going through law school. So I'm an attorney. So I serve as a general counsel for the Diocese of Tulsa. And when I was also still in law school, I discerned the diaconate. I remember I took my, uh, now you keep in mind, we're Catholic. So I took my priest out to a sports bar and bought him a drink and was like, I want to give more of my life to, to the Jesus, but I don't see how. I just don't, I don't, mm. I don't know how, right? I've, I've got this like splinter in the back of my mind that says, you know, serve, give more of yourself. And I'm not seeing how that's going to happen. And so he's the one that actually recommended, hey, you should join the diaconate program. And so at that time, our diaconate program was six years long. And it's like joining the National Guard. It's one week in a month. So you show up one week in a month on Friday, 
and go through Sunday and uh, you'd learn how to serve like in various liturgies. Uh, you study a great books. So we have a great book sequencing as part of our diaconate program. And then you kind of do systematic theology and what you typically uh, expect. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned the great books. I have to bring that up because I think listeners of mine would love to know a little bit more what that is. And I know you you m- talk about that online. What do you mean by the great books program and why would they have deacons go through that? That's a great question. So the great books are a list. It's kind of a malleable canon, but it's a canon uh, of books that made the biggest impact in the Western world. So here you think of like Homer, Plato, Aristotle, Dante, Shakespeare, uh, but also some moderns like Locke and Rousseau and uh, these kind of thinkers. And they're they're great mainly because of their impact. And I use that term particularly as opposed to like their truth, because we have some books that we would probably highly disagree with. Uh, like, like for instance, Karl Marx's Communist Manifesto is a great book, right? Because of how it impacted uh, our culture. It's a book worth reading. And so I think a lot of the great books, in a lot of ways, uh, you're stepping into a great conversation, right? These intellects mm-hmm. throughout time have dialogued with one another. And we're all disciples of somebody. I mean, we are, right? A lot of people are disciples of Nietzsche or of John Locke. They've never read him, but they're downstream from his ideas. So I usually invite people to read the great books because you kind of recapture or reclaim your own intellect. Like, where did these ideas come from? Why do I have this definition of freedom in my head? Uh, You know, why do I have the grammar that I do? And so we just recently launched uh, Ascend, the Great Books podcast, which is supposed to help people through the great books. And if you're going to start with the great books, you start with Homer. So we're in the middle of a year of Homer and introducing people to, you know, why would you read the Iliad? Why read the Odyssey? So the great books, um, as part of like a formation, because now I teach the great books for our diaconate formation program. I think in a lot of ways, it helps you to contextualize Jesus Christ, right? What was going on in the pre-Christian world? Because um, if you look at the, the history of such things, you see that the Greek culture and the Hebrew culture very much came together before the incarnation. And sometimes they came together in uh, very violent, terrible ways. So if you read like First and Second Maccabees, right, these, these Jewish-Greek wars prior to uh, Roman occupation were incredibly violent. But in other ways, they very much complemented one another. And so you see like the Jewish writers prior to Christ listing uh, the same cardinal virtues that say Aristotle does, right? And they're also writing their books in uh, Greek, right? The first Old Testament canon, the Septuagint is in Greek. And so on Ascend and like in my own capacity, we typically look at like Greek reason coupled together with Hebrew faith under Roman order uh, prepared the world for the coming of Jesus Christ, right? St. Paul says he came in the fullness of time. Right. Right. It's like what Tertullian says, right, about Athens and Jerusalem and uh, Rome. What is it? No, Athens, Jerusalem. What was his quote about? Well, Tertullian, yeah, Tertullian's on the other side, right? He says, uh, what does Athens right. have to do with Jerusalem? That's what it is. In the early church fathers, you have someone like him who is saying, what do these yeah. have to do with one another? And on the other side, you have uh, people like Justin Martyr, who mm-hmm. would very much say, like, Providence used the Greeks uh, to prepare the world to understand Christ, right? What does it mean when St. John says that the Logos became flesh, right? What does that actually mean? Well, Aristotle and Socrates and Plato were using the term Logos all the time. So I think for the great books, it helps us understand our pre-Christian heritage, if that makes sense. Like how how did providence prepare the world for Jesus Christ? Yeah. Um, and then post-Christ, it really helps us take uh, ownership of how did Christianity develop? Like it's, it's worth your time to read Augustine. It's worth your time to read Boethius or Dante or St. Thomas Aquinas, because I think it shows you kind of the rich treasury that we have mm-hmm. uh, in the Christian tradition. And just like the, the beauty of it, I think is worth spending time thinking through. 
Right. Now, I I teach very similar books and thoughts to high schoolers. I do a kind of a three-year cycle rotation as well using all the books that you've mentioned. I have been asked before, and I'm curious before um, I switch over because I really want to get your take on this. I've been asked before why study something that reads somewhat, um, the term I've heard is Eurocentric, but um, very Western you know, mm-hmm. why study and focus as opposed to some of the other things? Like, I don't know if you also include in the great conversation, things like Confucius or Lao Tzu or anything like that, but, but why Western? Why would we focus on that? That's a great question. Yeah. I think there's two answers to that. One is natural and one is supernatural. Cause mm-hmm. I agree. Things like Confucius, the Enuma Elish, uh, Epic of Gilgamesh, right? These are great texts. They're wonderful texts. Yeah. So on the natural side, one of them is just like, well, what are we actually downstream from, right? So we're living, you know, for me, I'm here in Oklahoma, I'm in America. Like, which one of these texts am I actually downstream from? Well, very much I'm downstream from Homer because of the impact that Hellenization yeah. had on the West, right? We all know who Plato and Aristotle are. They're somewhat ubiquitous in our culture. I'm not sure we know their teachings anymore, but we know their names, right? And so I think on a natural level, it's just like, okay, well, what what texts have engaged in history that I'm downstream from, because those are the ones that are, have impacted the way that you think. And if you're trying to reclaim your intellect, you need to read the ones that have actually impacted the culture around you. Cause this is where you've kind of sifted your ideas from on a supernatural way though. I would really push into the fact that, uh, you know, reading Homer has a providential element that really can't be repeated in any other culture. And what I mean by that is going back to, if we have to have a standard for the great books and like a historical standard, where do we start? What do we read? What's important? I think from the Christian context, we look at the incarnation, right? Christ came in the fullness of time. So then what are the cultures that help prepare the world for the coming of Jesus Christ? And if you do that, then it's the Greeks and the Hebrews and then the Roman empire. And they play, I think, a providential role that we can't repeat. And this is one of the dangers. Pope Benedict talks about this. He talks about a, a false multiculturalism that thinks that we can extricate the gospel from history and reinculturate it in whatever day we have now, which, you know, ironically almost always makes Jesus just look like whatever we are, right? Like, Oh, now Jesus agrees with all my politics. And it's wonderful. He looks like, you know, an Oklahoman in 2024, shocking how that happens. And so I think that a lot of times when we look at the Greeks and the Hebrews, uh, we're looking at cultures that providence used and they kind of makes them stand apart. Mm. So you're a fellow convert like I am, and I don't know what your background was. I was a lifelong evangelical and then an Anglican and then a Catholic. Uh, what came first for you, being a Catholic or having finding a love of the great books? Oh, that's a great question. I, I'm not sure how much I can extricate those two. I, I grew up um, in a very religious household. Uh, like a charismatic Methodist amalgamation thereof. It's Oklahoma. We're very non-denominational and kind of just, we flow, right? We just kind of flow yeah. into different things. Uh, there's not a whole lot of barriers. And I I went to Oral Roberts University, actually, which is kind of like uh-huh. the mecca for all things uh, charismatic. So I've, I've really been on the gamut here. And I, we, I remember like how we did systematic theology. We kind of just had topics and quotes and things like this. And so my introduction to the Catholic faith was uh, we were studying the relationship between faith and reason. And for whatever reason, we read the quote of the opening lines from Pope, Pope John Paul II's Fetus et Ratio, right? Faith and reason. Where he talks about faith and reason are the two wings upon which the human spirit, um, you know, rises to God. And it was really the first time as a young man that someone had told me faith and reason could be harmonious. They could work together. Mm-hmm. So I kind of grew up in a very charismatic standpoint, which sometimes didn't value the intellect as much. And at the same time, this is where you had like the new atheists, 
or like yeah. the only like you know faith doesn't can't get you anything and the only thing that reason is is an empirical truth and that was the thing that kind of stuck with me that then made me interested in the catholic faith and i ended up going to a little school called ave maria uh, in florida mm. as a protestant kind of just exploring trying to draw closer to jesus christ and the master's program down there was a systematic theology master's and has everything you think it would but then it also had a great book sequencing and that was my introduction to the great books was actually, you know, concomitant with my introduction to the Catholic faith. And so as I'm starting to read, you know, what are the sacraments of St. Thomas Aquinas? I'm also reading uh, Plato's Republic. And then I converted along with my now wife um, that fall or no, that, that following Easter. So the, the next spring. So my love of the great books is really hard uh, to separate from my coming into the church because I think they really helped me contextualize the faith and also see all the beautiful threads that I think it pulls from, if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes complete sense to me as a convert. I feel like I majored in English and then I, I continued to teach English and was a writer, but those books never came alive until I became Catholic. It was like everything clicked. It, it made sense, right. you know, um, and I think it's that fetus of ratio idea too. Um, your podcast has, I, I know at least one diehard fan in this household. My husband absolutely loves it. He cannot get enough <laughs> of, of your good. new show, which is great. I, I feel like you've made it for him. You know, he's um, he probably represents the type of person that you made it for, which is, you know, someone who wishes they had the freedom and the, and the space and the company to unpack mm -hmm. these books that he's always wanted to read. I, you know, I get to do that for my job. Um, but he doesn't, and yet he wants to. And so I think you're doing a real uh, service and it's been a gift to people who, who want to do that more. And I actually, I have a bookmark to, to dive deep in with him so we can read it together, but I think it's a great work that you're doing. And I, I mean, both in person and on the show, I think I love the idea. So. No, thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. I mean, what we saw, what ended up happening is I started a, my love of the great books has continued as I went to the diaconate and now I serve as an attorney. And so my, you know, my day to day is not in the great books, right? My day to day is in untying knots. And so I ended up having small groups at my house. I was like, Hey guys, it's Lent. Why don't we read Dante's Inferno? Like, let's just dive mm -hmm. into this. And we had a really good time. And then the, the guys that I, I read it with, most of them had never read it before. were like, Oh, let's, let's read like, you know, Purgatorio next, or let's read this or let's read that. And I really convinced him. I was like, you know, if you guys really want to get in the great books, we got to start at the beginning because you're starting a mm -hmm. conversation. If you just kind of yeah. do it shotgun style, it's not going to, it's not going to be as efficacious. And so, um, you know, they had some hesitancies about half the group had tried to read the Iliad before and had put it down. They're like, this is so terribly boring. I can't deal with it. And I was like, listen, we're going to do this. Just trust me. And so we started Sunday, great books. A bunch of men come to my house. It's fraternity, you know, charcuterie board, scotch. We, we chit chat for 30 minutes. And then we have about three hours of dialogue. We read four of the books, uh, chapters of, you know, the Iliad or the Odyssey a month. And it's really amazing in that context, how much of it came alive, right? That iron sharpening iron, um, the Homer's the teacher. So I don't play like a teacher role. I play like a tutor role, more of just like, uh, you know, who's, who's been here before, who's kind of seen Homer. And the impetus for the podcast was that then I started talking about this on Twitter and talking about how much I enjoyed this. And so many people were just like, I wish I had a group like that. And, you know, I, and reading groups are notoriously hard to get off the ground. And I think great books ones are even worse because it's like, get eight guys together. And they all want to read the Iliad. If no one's ever read it before, that's going to be rough. I'm sorry. Right. It, it's hard. So what we try to do with Ascend is say, well, could we just be that more experienced reader? Could we come alongside you and help you read the text and go mm -hmm. slowly through it, right? So we're just going to read one book a month, you know, chapter and have long conversations and try and get you habituated to actually reading the text. 
And it's been really fun. I mean, we actually released, um, you know, book four uh, is coming out soon. And we're just kind of leading people through the Iliad. And I think that, you know, hopefully people are, you know, gaining a lot from it. I think it's a fantastic idea. And how is this for a nice segue or a dovetail? You've got Ascend the podcast, but then there's the concept of ascending. Um, and <laughs> right. that's kind of what I want to unpack with you a little bit about, because that's the other thing you you probably write about most on Twitter slash X that I've heard. And that's this idea of um, the ladder of virtue and what that has to do with us in real life in 2024, and also what that has to do with this idea of the noonday devil. Uh, I asked you before we hit record how you pronounce it. I've heard of a million different ways. There's acedia, achedia, acedia. Um, right. I'm prone to any at any time during the day, but um, let's just go with acedia. Could you tell us, lay people, what the heck is acedia and why is it the noonday devil? Yeah, that's a great question. So it, its English name is slothfulness. And we, when we think about being slothful, I think we often think about just being lazy. Like I, I, I'm, you know, I had a slothful uh, Saturday. I laid on the couch and watched Netflix all day, right? I'm, I'm being slothful. But I think one thing to point out quite quickly uh, to somewhat disabuse us of that perception is that the marathon runner could be suffering from slothfulness. The CEO of a successful company can be, you know, suffering from a sadia. And the reason that is true is because asadia is actually, um, it's a sadness about the things of God. It's actually a slothfulness about what actually matters in life. And so you can have someone who is highly successful in, say, you know, more repetitive goods like money, right? They're a very successful businessman and they work really hard and they're busy, right? We typically don't think of busy people as being slothful. But Thomas Aquinas would say, no, there's a certain sadness. It's like a pall that comes upon the soul that ceases um, its interest in the higher things in life. In Dante's Purgatorio, when he gets to the terrace that purges sloth, Virgil gives this really wonderful little talk to him about love, about our natural love. It's a, it's a natural love we don't think about very often because we, when we think of love, we think about caritas, right? Charity. But charity is a supernatural virtue. We only have it once we're actually baptized. So what is it that actually draws you towards good things just naturally, right? That we would think we're available in all people by virtue of being a human. And he talks about uh, what's in the Latin, amor, or in the Greek, it's eros, where we have this natural love that needs to be satiated. It's a self-love. It's a need love, right? Like we want to be loved. We love being loved. And it is a, in its best sense, it's a love that draws you higher to God. And the reason, which seems somewhat counterintuitive, but how it works is, is that in Plato's Symposium, so going to the Greeks, uh, the woman Diotima in there is the one who tells him about this Eros. And this is not how we think about Eros, right? Because Eros is where we get like erotic. And we don't think, I mean, that's always bad, right? That's like concupiscence. It's like a, it's a negative love. But Plato uh, takes the word Eros and kind of changes it and says, listen, your Eros seeks beauty. That's what it seeks. And it wants to attain beauty and be happy. And for most men, there's this Eros, this awakens because of the beauty of the beloved, because of the beauty of a woman. But Diotima teaches him is that, yes, that's true. But at the same time, that Eros is not an invitation to the lower appetites. It's not an invitation then to abuse that woman or say, um, you know, to satiate on her and kind of consume that beauty for your own good. It's actually an invitation to greater beauties, to higher beauties. And she talks about the beauty of the soul. Like, do we understand the beauty of virtue? So if you, if you see a woman and she's beautiful and you love that woman, you also come to love her soul. 
And you want things that are good for her soul and things that are beauty, beautiful, like virtue. And then on top of that, we have, say, wisdom, right? What's the highest thing that the soul can seek? Well, it can seek the beauty of wisdom. And at each stage, right, this is why it's called the ladder of love. You can think about it as like rungs of a ladder, right? That Eros is actually calling you from lesser beauties to greater beauties and saying like, okay, the higher you go up, the more you're satiated, right? So if you actually want to find happiness in life, yes, you find it in other people. And our culture is very good about that, right? We always think that, you know, this person's going to complete me or make me happy. But ever since, you know, even Plato, we've realized that, no, there's also a great satiation of peace to your appetites that comes from living a virtuous life, that comes from seeking wisdom, right? So something that we wouldn't be familiar with, uh, you know, Plato in there with Socrates says that the most erotic life is the life of the philosopher, the -hmm. one that seeks wisdom, right? He's going to be the one that's most satiated. And this term gets picked up in the Christian tradition and particularly in the Greek fathers in which they really point out, and I think this is where it kind of hits home, is that you want to be happy all the time. You never be like, you know what I want to be right now? I want to be unhappy. That's not how that works, right? You want to be happy all the time. And this is the problem because what that means is your eros, that amor, that natural love in you that needs to be satiated is infinite. And you see immediately in our culture and everywhere we go wrong with this, right? We just, we just become consumers and I constantly just want to be happy. And so I consume, consume, consume. And what the Greek fathers point out is like, no, what you really need is an infinite beauty. If you have an infinite appetite, what you need is an infinite beauty. You need something that actually corresponds with your appetite. And the only thing that's actually infinite and beautiful is God. And so they make this argument that your natural love, this amor, this eros that's in you, is enkindled in you by God to draw you back to him. So you can see it as like a a circle, right? Love is a good circle. So God creates you and he creates you with this love, this uh, amor, this eros. They'd even talk about like Gregory of Nyssa, an erotic appetite that seeks beauty. And it's actually enkindled in you to bring you back to God because you're going to seek higher and greater beauties until you find him again. And so- there's this, it does. It, it, um, it's, I often post on X about it because it basically captures my imagination. My own spiritual life is pretty much tied up into this. And I keep reading all these early church fathers on this, on this context. But so where Asadia comes in, uh, going back to Virgil's commentary in the Purgatorio, is Asadia can be seen as a cooling of love. And I think that's one of the best ways I can, I can describe it. It's a cooling of love. And what that means is that Eros is this ascent to go higher up the ladder, right? Asadia cools that. It cools uh, what your intellect seeks. It cools what your spirit seeks. It can even cool your appetites until the fact that like, it's not that um, you just don't even think that it's worth ascending, right? That's where the slothfulness comes in. It's not even worth climbing the ladder of love. And sometimes we get stuck on the appetites. Like I'm just going to sit here and wallow at the bottom of the ladder and like, you know, uh, the things like Aristotle says, we're the worst animals when it comes to sex and food, right? We just sit here and wallow at the bottom of the ladder. But sometimes that doesn't even bring satiation. And actually the early church fathers will talk about that an, a, a culture that is suffering from asadia and has its love cooled to enough will hate life itself. It won't find life worth living. And if that doesn't describe our own modern culture, I don't know what is, that we just put these poor people on a pattern of consumption and then you just become depressed. And it's like, well, you know what you can do is you can just have euthanasia, right? Or you can just abort the child or you can do whatever. And so what ends up happening is I think the best way to see a sadia is it's hard to see defects if you don't know the good that they're defective of. And I think that the worst sins in our culture are the ones that we have difficulty naming. 
Because if we don't understand the grammar of the sin, then we don't understand its logic, which means we can't talk about it. It's like an exorcisms, right? You name the demon before or you actually exercise it. You got to be able to name the demon. And, the, and because we don't understand Asadia, it's really seeped into our culture in a really uh, deep way. Which is why I think it's so important to talk about. Uh, to me, this is the the thing that comes up in my life all the time. This is probably what I bring to the confessional more than anything else. Um, you know, we we are very unaware of how our culture, you know, cultivates this new day devil in us to to flourish mm-hmm. and grow because of our not only our creature comforts, but the things we actually praise, the things we celebrate, and the things we demonize. I've heard a modern, uh, just a quick modern definition of asadia in our, you know, 21st century is just a sadness that good things are hard. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, that's what I've told my kids before. Just like the, an easy go-to answer is like, it's just a sadness that the best things in life, the things God has called you to are just hard. And it's so easy to think that that means something is wrong in life. Or, you know, I, I've told this to my daughter who's um, in college right now, and it's just whenever things get really hard, you it can mess with your head. You start thinking, I am not on the path God has given me. And those are just lies <laughs> given mm-hmm. to us by our, our wildly comfortable life, you know, that says that comfort is what we're made for. And as soon as we're in discomfort, you know, sound the alarm bells. Um, and so to me, I, I love that you talk about Asadia enough because I, I don't think any of us doesn't deal with this in, you know, 2024, especially in America. And the problem is, like you mentioned, it's it's now ubiquitous in our culture. And, you know, we're kind of like the stones and the culture is the river. And so this is what's constantly washing over us, trying to form us. So it's not only just in how we live our life and consumption, it's in our media, it's normative, like these types of things, right? So it's, it's one way to look at it is in your soul. Uh, you know, you have various parts of your soul and each part of your soul loves something. So you're like, like your intellect, how does Eros play out in your intellect? Well, your intellect loves truth. That's what your intellect seeks, right? It's like an appetite. Like I, I want the truth. But if Asadia comes in and cools that and says, no, you don't actually love the truth and you're not willing, like you said, right, to actually pursue the truth, then what you end up having is a culture of nihilism, right? There is no mm-hmm. truth. It's a culture of nihilism. It's a culture of relativism. Um, the second part of the soul, the spirited seeks things that are honorable, right? Glory, things that are difficult, right? That spiritedness to overcome things that are arduous for the sake of some good. If a sadia cools that, then yeah, it, there's nothing actually worth fighting for. There's no beauty worth sacrificing for. And we kind of see this today where it's like, you know, even like these polls of just like, you know, what do you value in life? And people aren't willing to die for anything. There's nothing. We just live, we just kind of float along. And so really for most people, because um, one of the articles I wrote on Asadia was called The Crisis of Fat-Sold Men. Yeah. And the, the imagery I was trying to draw on there was simply what ends up happening to the soul is that it has no truth to seek. It has um, no honor or glory to seek. So it becomes very soft. And usually for most people, what ends up happening is it just wallows down in the appetitive. So what is life? It's just consuming. You kind of see this, like if you want like a cultural example uh, for those of us who are online too much, um, you know, you see these kind of videos on TikTok or whatever that then get imported over the Twitter because that's pretty much the only social media I'm on where people talk about all the glories of not having children, right? They're like, oh, look, yes. right? They're like, look, I don't have any kids. And what what is the whole video? Here's the restaurants I eat at. Here's the concerts I go to. Here's the products I can buy. 
they're showing it as a, I've peaked, right? This is, this is the grandest thing in life. Look, I have all these goods. But if you watch the videos, all you realize is like, you're just a consumer. You're just a corporate consumer. You're giving up children and the good of children for the sake of like being a good customer at Apple. And, but we've become so normative in this because Asadia has cooled all of these loves. It, one of the things some friends and I have talked about with those videos is how often they bring up Costco. It's like, wow, that is the bar you have set up. Okay. Okay, good. Right. Um, you posted a few weeks ago, I keep thinking about this, maybe it was even more recent than this, this idea of um, what makes beauty different from truth and goodness that, you know, we can, how truth, we can hate it because it, it shows us that we, we want untrue things. Goodness, we can hate because we want bad things, but beauty we hate not because we want ugliness. It's because we're not worthy of it. Or we we realize our our lack of living up to that. And to me, that's the direct connection to Asadia. Because you end up you you point out how that ultimately is God and that it mm-hmm. it's the closest example you can think of to fear of the Lord. But that to me is that connection with Asadia. It's that recognition that I don't live up to the beauty I am made for. And mm-hmm. I'm going to let the noonday devil have the best of me instead of letting that call me higher. Yeah, no, it's really beauty has just some interesting properties to it. I think that um, I, I agree with everything that you said. I think that, you know, a natural example of this uh, are, are young men, right? So if you're a young man and a beautiful woman walks into a room, right? Like how many, how many times do we see that then they, they lose their minds, right? They can't talk, right. they get afraid, they can't do these things. And certainly though, what is happening there, right? He's not afraid of the beauty because he wants what's ugly. Like you said, he's afraid of the beauty because he actually wants the beauty. It's because of the beauty that he's afraid of it. And naturally, um, obviously I talk about the masculine experience because that's my experience. Then you're correct. Immediately then what happens is, is that beauty then somewhat judges you. Oh, well, am I enough to go and talk to that woman? Will that woman want even anything to talk to me about, right? Do I? And the thing is, is that beauty then brings in this aspect that I don't think truth and goodness do, even though they end up all, all overlapping. And I do think that that is, I was really trying to think out what else in life is like that. Like what, what else in life causes a certain fear, but because I actually want the thing, not because I don't want it. And I really do think that this is if we look at God as beauty itself, right? He's the ever ancient, uh, ever new, right? He's the primal beauty that this really is that fear of the Lord, right? That, that, that I, I fear God, not because I don't want God, but because I do want him. But then, you know, it's just, as I draw closer to that light, I see more of my imperfections and I see how I am not worthy of this, right? We see this in the saints, like Mother Teresa, um, you know, and other saints, you know, they live their whole life serving the poor. And then you read like their journals and they're like, I'm a terrible sinner. And you think like, what, what are you talking about? Like, why, how could you see yourself as a terrible sinner? Is this like a false piety or like some just like, you know, circus act humility? But in reality, it's because the closer you draw to God and that kind of uh, bright light, if you will, the closer you see your imperfections and the closer it causes, it causes a certain fears you draw closer to him of actually even having to judge yourself. Um, you know, a really mundane example of this is like when you're driving at night and you think your windshield is clean and mm. then someone's headlights hits you and all of a sudden it's like, wow, my windshield is not clean. I have yeah. bugs all over this thing. That's, that's very similar to the spiritual life where you draw closer to the light and you see those imperfections 
And they, they do cause a certain fear because uh, in drawing close to beauty, then there's a judgment and then there's like, okay, well, what am I going to do? Am I going to ascend? Am I going to actually climb higher or am I going to shrink back? And I think the call of the spiritual life is to continually configuring ourselves to Jesus Christ and make our soul beautiful uh, in an image of him. So I can just hear a listener think this is all well and good. I know exactly what you're talking about. Yes, this is what I fight daily. Tell me what to do then. How do I ascend this ladder of virtue in my day that involves picking up kids and making dinner and going to work and living my life? What does that look like boots on the ground? I think it's a great question. And you, and you are correct, right? How do we climb the ladder of love? Like overall, it's virtue, right? As you climb and you you are virtuous, you are sculpting your soul into an image of Jesus Christ, right? Beauty is drawing to beauty. When we draw to beauty, we don't become ugly, we become beautiful. And so we are trying to take on the beauty of the creator that we were actually made in his image of. And so I think, you know, off the top of the head, the church, you know, has always put forward that if we're trying to uh, crucify our flesh, right, we pray, uh, we give alms and we fast. And that is not, a lot of times we want like an esoteric answer, like, oh, here's the secret prayer you can give, or like, here's this like five-step program or whatever. I really think that the just real basics, the real basics, this is one thing I think with the great books too, is that I think they invite you to an intellectual life insofar as like, okay, uh, if you have a busy life, like what are your first fruits of the day? Are you waking up early? Can you sacrifice some sleep? You know, a lot of times on X, I'll talk about, you know, uh, prayer, coffee, and great books. That's my morning routine, right? I go make go make coffee, go do my prayers. By the time the coffee's done, I can go get some, and then I'm reading some kind of text, right? So I'm offering the first fruits of my day. Uh, you know, do I fast at all? Do I give up a lunch, right? I know a lot of good men that give up a lunch for sake of their family. Just some really mundane things. I think a lot of times we push into the spiritual too much that there has to be some kind of giant esoteric mystic thing that we do when reality drawing close to God is very much found in the little things, right? How do I give my alms? Do I give 10%, right? Can I make those sacrifices? Do I fast anytime during the week? Can I get some small habit, skipping lunch one day a week, praying, reading, doing something during that time? And like, when do I pray? Do I pray in the morning or do I pray before I try and go to bed, which means half time I fall asleep or, you know, whatever it is. So I think that as a starter, um, that's what I would say as far as just like cultivating virtue in the soul. But I also think the cultivation of the intellect, like what we're doing here is very important because it's very hard to address sin if you don't understand what the sin is. It's very difficult, right? I, I can't, it's kind of like the opposite of uh, knowing, loving and serving God. I can't love him unless I know him, right? Knowledge mm-hmm. has to come before love because I can't love that what I don't know. It's the same way if I'm trying to crucify my flesh, it's really hard to get rid of sin if I don't actually understand what the sin is. And I think Asadia is one of those sins that we need to give more attention to so we can start to kind of diagnose our own spiritual life. Yeah, naming it. Uh, and this conversation of ours will go out uh, at the very beginning of Lent. And that was entirely on purpose. I wanted you to bring sure. up um, this conversation with the Sadia because this is the the season to do those three things, right? The three-legged stool of Lent with fasting, almsgiving, and prayer. That should be an encouragement to us. I think sometimes we feel this discouragement like, well, I've tried that <laughs> and it didn't work. But to to hear that and recognize that this can happen in, you know, while I am teaching my children, while I am stuck in traffic, while I am on a date night with my spouse, mm-hmm. that these are ways that we can ascend that ladder of love. It's through, I mean, it sounds trite. It's the little things, but it's not 
these are the biggest things that we are called to. I mean, we are called to Christ likeness. Like ultimately that is our entire purpose. It's to, um, to become like Christ and what other way to do that than to cultivate virtue, what other way to cultivate virtue than to cultivate habits. You know, that's, I think that's even what Aquinas calls it, you know, the virtue of habit or the habit of virtue. Um, And so don't despise the little things, I think, is the key to to combating acedia, that it might feel like you've done nothing, but that's kind of how habits work. You know, you, you don't suddenly um, get fit in one day at the gym in the same way. Right. You're not suddenly at the top of that ladder after one day of, of being nice to your kids or taking the farthest parking spot or whatever, you know. Right. Yeah, I think that – I. When I teach uh, OCIA, which is the classes that people take to become Catholic, uh, when we mm-hmm. talk about Lent, you know, this is something that comes up where it's like, well, we're not going to eat meat on Fridays. And of course, it's very easy to be sarcastic about religion. And so it's like, can someone explain to me what not eating a hamburger has to do with like, you know, right. Jesus Christ? But yeah. your example, I think, is the proper analogy, which is the same will. Like, how do you exercise the will to say no to sin? Well, you don't want to go put yourself in temptation, like temptations, like, well, I'm going to go somewhere where I'm tempted. I'm going to test my will. Well, that's terrible, right? We actually ask God not to do that in the Lord's Prayer. So the way that you actually build up your soul in a lot of ways is to exercise it on saying no to goods, not evils, mm. but to goods. So, you know, eating a hamburger on a Friday is a good, fine, I'll have this, right? I'm not engaging in gluttony. It's just a normal meal. But when you actually start to, to deprive yourself, when you actually say no to your will, like, no, I'm going to have that salad and this salad's going to be terrible, but I'm going to eat it because I would rather have a burger, but I'm going to eat the salad. What you're doing is you're exercising that will to be strong on things that aren't sins, things that are actually like goods, but I'm going to set this aside to actually exercise a certain authority over my own appetites so that then when I am tempted with an evil, that same muscle that I've already exercised can kick in and say, no, I have self-control. And I think we just don't take um, we don't appreciate and have the gratitude for the little spiritual acts of self-discipline and denial and how that actually can build up your spiritual life in a really tremendous way. And to stick with this analogy, and this reminds me again of that ladder, um, I was thinking of this in some ways of kind of like with food, how at the top you've got this amazing steak dinner, at the very bottom you've got some kind of drive through burger that – in to take this analogy farther than it probably needs to go, you're also cultivating your taste for virtue, you know, like Mm -hmm. saying no to something good helps you say no to the right things. You know, I think of that rightly ordered loves that Augustine talks Mm -hmm. about. It helps us rightly order our loves to where um, somehow, you know, five years later, you can look at this and think, oh, I'm actually loving the things that back then I thought you know, that the noonday devil was telling me this isn't worth it. But somehow over time, I'm finding myself like wanting to read Homer and Shakespeare and wanting to not eat meat on Fridays and, you know, wanting to take the farthest parking spot at the grocery store. So, you know, all the things that you just think don't matter actually really and truly over time, if you let them have their way with you or if you let them have their way with you. Yeah. Um, they do their work, you know, they do. So with that in mind, with that in mind, I would love to know as we wrap it up, uh, what we always ask people and that's what's something that's actually adding beauty to your days right now. What you got? That's a great question. Well, it's probably somewhat self-evident from this. I mean, I, I probably got on the, the kick of setting arrows in the ladder of love. I years ago, and it just mm-hmm. has not let me go. 
And so I've studied, you know, Plato a lot and how this kind of came into Christianity. I just finished a book uh, that was a summary of uh, Dionysius and St. Maximus the Confessor that really talk about, um, you know, how Eros and climbing the love is just integral to the spiritual life and how they could do this. And so for me, you know, those morning reads of having those quiet morning reads, first doing your prayer or then having your coffee and kind of reading these great texts. I mean, that sets my whole day, right? I mean, that yeah. gives me the beauty. And then the whole day as I'm kind of like, you know, doing lawyerly things, um, I'm thinking about these things in the back of my mind, right? These are, these are the things that are actually animating me and giving me energy and life throughout the day. And so I think a lot of times when I talk about the great books, I also tell people like for a lot of people, this is also an introduction to the intellectual life. And if you will start to have these disciplines and make little sacrifices, like getting up earlier, it's amazing how much beauty this can add just to your daily life. It It is the crowning part of my day. You know, when I start my day with that holy hour and my, you know, alone time in my reading chair before everyone else is up, the rest of the day could completely fall apart. But at least I've, I've gotten that mm-hmm. key part of my day in. So I'm 100% with you. And it's funny you use the phrase, the intellectual life, because that is the thing that is adding more beauty to my life. It's literally the book, The Intellectual yeah. Life. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, A.G., do you know how to say his name correctly? Sartion. Okay, Sartion, so friend. Sartion. Okay, got it. Um, I, it's been on my TBR list for years, probably 10 years. Finally decided to give myself this book as a Christmas gift. And I was surprised when it came because I thought it would be much bigger. It's a small little book, but I read like two pages at a time because that gives me enough to chew on the whole day. Um, Mm -hmm. So I'm not very far into it since it's early in the year. I plan to just read this throughout the year and probably just turn back around to the front page and read it again. Um, This has been a book that's really speaking to me as a lay person who, you know, is a busy wife and mom who just lives her largely ordinary life, but, but longs for more of that intellectual life. I was mm-hmm. told, okay, but you know, he's, he doesn't write with the idea of someone who juggles kids. And so far I would argue, actually, I can see how this is highly applicable to anybody, including those of us parents who, who juggle normal life. So I highly recommend this book and I know you do too. I do too. Yeah, that's the book that actually really critiqued me and caused me to restructure my whole day. Because actually, I think mm. that he, um, given your comment about moms, you know, he has a section in there. I don't remember where it is, where he really pushes into it. And he's like, I don't care if you're a factory worker, you have time to cultivate an intellectual yes. life. And I, and what he really does is he critiques like, how do you spend your day? And what I realized was, is like, oh, the last two hours of my day, um, on a good day, probably, I'm not doing anything right? I'm either on my phone, my brain is gone, I'm decompressing, I'm not ready for bed yet. But like, I, nothing good happens during this time. I'm not productive. Right. And he's the one that really convinced me to just take those two hours and move them to the beginning of the day, right? Mm-hmm. So fall asleep, um, you know, rebuild your habits, and then get up. And yeah, now it's like when I wake up, and my body's like, hey, it's 430. I am happy. I'm like, yes, yeah. I get like two hours just to myself to read, to pray. And yeah, I agree with you. Whatever happens the rest of the day doesn't matter. I've had that time. And that book is the one that really helped me on the right path. I think he even addresses um, the workers as saying 
almost like what a blessing you have, because this means you get to make the most of your time. Like it, it's mm-hmm. almost considered a blessing that you have limited time because this means you're going to make every minute count if you pursue the intellectual life, you know, with, with the right frame of mind. Um, so he's not even saying like, oh, you can make it work if you try. He's saying like, no, you, you get to do this act. Yeah, he doesn't, you know? he doesn't uh, allow for many excuses in that book. Right, right. So far, it's been uh, a small little game changer that's really, really checking all the boxes that I've I've been wanting to have checked for a long time. So thank you for talking about this book as much as you do on X as well. Um, and speaking of X, where is the best place for people to find you? I know the podcast. Anywhere else that you want to point people to? No, just uh, I'm on there on X personally. Just, you know, there's not a whole lot of Deacon Harrison garlics running around. Uh, so you can <laughs> find me on there. And then Ascend, the Great Books podcast, we're also on X. If you're not on X or Twitter, we have thegreatbookspodcast.com. And we're also on Spotify. And we're currently trading emails back and forth with Apple to get ourselves up on Apple. For some reason, that's yeah. become very difficult. Uh, but yeah, you can find me on those places. Cool. Yeah, I will put links to all that in the show notes so people can just also find that there. But thank you so much for your time, Deacon. It has been a delight chatting with you. It's been um, something I've looked forward to for a a while now. So appreciate you carving out a few minutes to to talk with us about Asadia. Yeah, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Editing is by Kyle Oxenreiter. Music is by Kevin McLeod. Thanks so much for listening. I'll see you again here soon.